Hello, and welcome back to the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. We are joined today again uh, by Captain Matt Ormsby. Uh, Captain Ormsby is currently finishing up an assignment as the Area Defense Counsel at Misawa Air Base, Japan. And we're going to be talking to him about his recent uh, article that he submitted for the National Security Law Writing Competition that is hosted by the Air Force Judge Advocate General School and supported by the JAG School Foundation. This year, the topic was how national security law impacts America's strategic competition in the gray zone. Captain Ormsby is no stranger to this competition and has submitted with a fair amount of success several times over the last uh, several years. And he submitted this year a paper called Gray Dismay, a strategy to identify and counter gray zone threats in the South China Sea. Captain Ormsby, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So wanted to get um, dive in here to, to your paper with you kind of just giving us the 30-second version of what you wrote. What is kind of the thesis, as is the case with many of these papers, uh, especially when you have a specific topic, the uh, the title doesn't give away a ton. So give us the elevator speech version of your uh, 20 odd page law review article um, before we get started. Absolutely. So in a nutshell, I argue that the US uh, has had a lot of success in conventional war fighting uh, in past years. And because of that, we've been deterring our adversaries from that high-end fight and kind of driving them toward what, what we call gray zone threats. Um, so threats that are um, not necessarily traditional military threats. And China is making advances in the gray zone on a regular basis in the, in the South China Sea. And so my argument is the best way to counter um, some of these gray zone initiatives from China is by strengthening international legal agreements, so treaties, and response obligations with allies in the Indo-Pacific, um, focusing and starting primarily with the Philippines, um, who has really the oldest uh, mutual defense treaty with the U.S. Excellent. Yeah. So gray zone, this is kind of what we're all thinking about and talking about, writing about, and you defined it the way I think we all kind of understand it, that area between things that are clearly peaceful actions and clearly war. And generally, most people listening to this are gonna, is gonna know what we mean by gray zone without any more definition than that. But you kind of discuss some specific things um, in, your, in your, one of your opening sections that I kind of wanted to pick your brain about. And the first one of those is how gray zone threats are now more than ever explicitly a focal point for our national security policy. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you treated it and discussed it in your article? Gray zone threats received a lot of attention back in March 2021 because in that month the White House released its interim, interim national security strategic guidance. Um, and as you probably recall, this was very early in President Biden's administration, about two months after he was sworn in. But even early in his presidency, I think the, the president called on the U.S. to, quote, develop capabilities to better compete and deter gray zone actions. 
And that was probably the clearest mandate up until that point coming from the White House. So you have this direct appeal, uh, kind of shining a light on gray zone threats and emphasizing how the gray zone has become uh, a new area of focus for revisionist regimes, much like China and other adversaries. Yeah, so that, that specific part um, kind of struck me because when we talk about these proposals, um, and I'm, you know, we in the field, I'm talking to lots of people about different ideas, you know, identifying threats and coming up with ideas to how we can, you know, mitigate, how we can deter uh, those kind of threats. It's not something we're making up. It's something we've, like you've just said, been mandated to try to address we as a department of defense so that that kind of struck me as a little different than how the conversation has been playing out but another specific part of gray zone competition that i wanted to talk to you about is you spend a little time discussing three major factors uh, that make something gray zone competition so can you tell us what three that you talked about um, in that section of your paper and I hope it doesn't sound too simplistic, but I think of this, uh, at least from my frame of mind, as kind of the ABCs of gray zone warfare, because not only is it easy to remember, but these are, in my mind, the most important basic traits of the gray zone. So for me, gray zone competition is ambiguous and belligerent and coercive. And so by, by using the word ambiguous, I mean that it is, gray zone uh, threats are implied harm um, they do not fit cleanly within the traditional war models uh, uh, that the U.S. has studied, uh, you know, in the late 20th century. They're not clearly military uh, or, or warring in nature. Um, so, for example, you, you may see a state's coast guard uh, rather than traditional Navy vessels uh, engaged in, in the gray zone. So they're ambiguous. They're belligerent. So they are aggressive in nature. Um, they have the ultimate goal of bringing about some sort of strategic advantage. Uh, it's a win-lose, right? It's a, it's a zero-sum game in that sense. So the receiving state in, in the gray zone is always worse off uh, after a threat in the gray zone. And finally, they're coercive. So these threats are meant to force uh, some sort of outcome uh, that the actor is using to, to put the, the receiving state in a difficult decision to comply. Um, and so whether it's political, whether it's economic or, or maritime, gray zone competition is very much calculated to bring about those desired outcomes. Right, and I do, I think it sounds like judging by your, the rest of your ideas that we're going to get into that we really focus a lot on the ambiguity part here. It sounds like your, your proposals address that uh, heavily uh, so that we end up with less a category with a, you know, smaller category of actions that are ambiguous, meaning we have a, hopefully a little clearer menu of response options before us but we'll we'll get into that uh in a little bit um but talk a little bit about that um i could dig in some on that ambiguity aspect and why that makes something gray zone and why it makes it kind of hard to respond to and therefore kind of why that means it's uh has been or can be effectively deployed by our competitors yeah i think that's that's really the, the most important factor when you talk about the gray zone is um, 
is that it's ambiguous and so much so that oftentimes uh, the receiving state doesn't even understand, doesn't even register that, that there's a, an attack per se, or that there's something's at risk because it's so subtle um, that it, it, it's really falling below the radar. It's not a traditional attack or, or outright armed use of force. So very often you have states sort of scratching their heads and wondering, where, where does this fall in the matrix of responses? Uh, are, are we allowed to engage with them? Should we uh, reciprocate in any way? Or should we just sort of let this be an act of progression uh, without much more? So I think it really puts states in a, in a tough bind where they don't know exactly how to respond appropriately. Yeah, I think uh, an example that came to mind was China's actions uh, with regard to these um, features in the South China Sea and kind mm -hmm. of building those up where maybe one load of material that changes this feature from a little less submarine to a little more above the waterline, one right. load of material, that's, that's nothing, right? That's not a act of war but right. fast fast forward a few years and now there's a military base where before there was just a few uh rocks sticking out of the water <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah exactly and then, yeah i mean a lot of what you see china doing is it's just those small acts whether it's um uh you know uh, grouping in, in mass around an island or just chasing a boat um, things of that nature to kind of stake a claim to, to like you say, these, these, what, what are, you know, small rocks and shoals and reefs in the South China Sea. Um, but, you know, year after year, if, if um, these Chinese acts of aggression are not checked, then the Chinese will be emboldened and they will do more aggressive acts in the future because we allow a precedent to be set. Yeah, speaking of those um, actions in the South China Sea and being emboldened, talk about some of these other specific instances you mentioned uh, where China has acted out kind of more and more against, especially in, you know, in our, for our purposes today, the interests of the Philippines in that area. And wh what are some of the behaviors they are engaging in over there? One of the the biggest uh, acts that they engaged in was in 2019, um, and that was this uh, massing of boats, uh, kind of a swarming around Fitu Island. Um, and the Philippine government uh, condemned this act and, and said that it was a violation of uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But Fitu Island is, is the second largest of the chain of reefs uh, and shoals in the South China Sea, it, forming the Spratly Islands. And there's not a whole lot on the island. Um, there's uh, some some buildings. It's the island itself is just a few feet above uh, above sea level during high tide, uh, but it's inhabited by Filipino citizens, uh, and uh, they've been living there for a long time. Even as the island has become this object of interest for China, um, so what you had is uh, in 2019, the Philippine Department uh, of Foreign Affairs basically lodged a protest after the Philippine military uh, was tracking more than 200 Chinese vessels um, uh, around and near Fitu Island. And, and those vessels have been sighted uh, hundreds of times uh, near the island uh, in just in 2019 alone. 
And so it's just a, this great example of uh, falling short of war, uh, clearly, uh, but such, such actions being intimidating, being ambiguous, being belligerent, um, uh, seeming to be hostile in nature, um, and, and trying to intimidate and challenge um, this kind of Philippine maritime claims uh, to the waters around the island and, and possibly at a later time to the island itself. So what was the um, international response to that? Yeah, the, the international response to that and, and even other incidents too um, has been pretty muted. Um, it, as you'd expect, the Philippine government has always been up in arms and has always been very vocal about it. Um, but they have reached out to other allies, um, such as Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, for help um, with little to no response, it, and to the US too, because we are an ally as well of the Philippines. Um, we have agreements with them, uh, legal uh, agreements, so treaties that have gone back for decades as well uh, to come to their defense. So they've, they've um, reached out to us as well. Um, Right or wrong, though, uh, there's been little to no um, meaningful help, at least in the eyes of the Filipino Philippine government, um, when it comes to at these sort of acts of aggression from the Chinese.
Captain Ormsby, uh, thanks. Like I said, I think you make a very persuasive case. What parting thoughts can you leave us with uh, with regards to, to this paper and these proposals? Well, I wanted to start with the premise that as much as we've all been following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, I still think China will remain the main focus for us um, in terms of defense and foreign affairs. Uh, so that's why I started with my article with the, the quote that the United States is an Indo-Pacific power. Uh, again, quoting the White House, um, as much as we should keep our eye on Russia, I think that the main challenge will be China for now. But I also wanted to come up with hopefully some ideas that are reproducible and scalable because we can't ignore Russia or the Middle East at this time either. So uh, I was hoping that, you know, if there are any kernels that can be taken out of this paper, that they could be applied to other situations, other adversaries, um, whether the maritime or whether we're talking about on the border between Russia and Ukraine, um, that they could be reproduced and hopefully used in, in conflicts large and small. Um, so that's what I, I hope to do here while you know, not forgetting some of our allies, because again, the, the, the White House has, has foot stomped repeatedly that they're turning to Asia, that they're wanting to focus uh, and give a warm handshake um, to allies that have been with us since the end of the war. Uh, we don't want to neglect them. We want to, to give them reassurances that the U.S. is here to defend our interests, but also their interests abroad. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.